John chapter 4. I want to read again verses 39 to 41. This is the woman at the well speaking with Jesus, and she goes back to her town, Samaria, and she, this, is, this is what they say, verse uh, 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And I want you to notice two things are going on there. Number one, the testimony of a person brought people to Jesus. And then secondly, the word itself, Jesus spoke with them, and many more came. And so this morning, we, uh, we're going to hear the, the word of God and personal testimonies blended together out of John 4. And we're going to hear that from some of our global partners. We have global partners who have spent decades in South America. They went to an unreached people group. They learned the language. They preached the gospel. People got saved. They translated the Bible into that language. They taught the people how to read and write. And now they're watching Jesus raise up nine local churches that would be reproducing as well. And so uh, the Dicks are with us. And Merrill Dick is going to be um, sharing many of his testimonies of what the Lord has done, and he's going to do so through John 4. This is going to be a really special treat. Um, I just want you to know, so last month he had, I think it was like five operations on his left eye. Maybe it was his right eye. I don't know which one it was, but it was an eye. And uh, he's, he, he's basically blind, and not really, but he's going to be up here preaching. And so just want to say thank you for being here in this season. And um, so let's give him some love together as he comes to share what God has done and the word of God with us. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I'm here totally without my liver. Very glad to see you. I'm going to give you important words, and if you have ear holes, it will penetrate. If you don't have ear holes, it will not penetrate, and you'll end up having lily pad thinking, which is very superficial thinking. So a little bit of pume. Good to be with you. We thank God for this church, for this body of believers. You guys have been tracking with us for years. You guys have prayed. Many of you have given. You've written notes. You've uh, had our backs. And uh, it's made a difference with our literacy program down there among the, the Pume. It's, you guys have touched the Bible translation project. You're affecting the curriculum development. We're writing all this curriculum for the Pume to give them more uh, spiritual helps. You guys have been a part of all that, and I thank you for that. So it's great to have the involvement of a local church, that's for sure. Well, this is kind of nice to have the, have the pulpit here. Uh, in Pume land, we don't really have a pulpit usually. We meet on the ground, meet in little huts, in hammocks, a little different. 
but this is all pretty fancy. And the one thing that is threatening, they said there's a clock here, which I do not see. I won't, yeah, no, I don't see no clock. That's good. If that's, you can only walk in the light if you have the light. So, I want to talk about missions this morning. And before I get into the teaching of John 4, I want to take you on a little excursion into our history that uh, gives you kind of a snapshot of what we've been through as, uh, as missionaries. We've had the huge privilege of doing missions. So let's, uh, let's get into the slide presentation here. In 1976, we had the huge privilege of going to South America to work among an unreached people group, like Bo said. And this was a group that knew nothing about Jesus Christ. They never had, they had no exposure to the word. And we had the privilege of being Christ's ambassadors to lay foundations of truth where no foundations had ever been laid. So the ethnic group of the Pume, they number 11,000. They're scattered over an area of about 20,000 square miles. They're animists. They're semi-nomadic. They live off the wild game, eating about 25 different types of roots and fruits and seeds. The fruit department is the palm groves. Their Trader Joe's is the woods and the jungles. Their meat markets are the rakes, lakes, rivers, and creeks. And they do some gardening with squash, corn, manioc root, and so on. And even today, they're still starting fires by rubbing sticks together. It's crazy, but that is life there in Pume land. Still hunting with bows and arrows, cooking over a fire, living in palm huts, sleeping on the ground or in hammocks. Over there in that world, there is no electricity, there's no phone, stores, running water, medical clinic, internet, or anything else. Just them and wide open country. After getting permission to move in from the village chiefs through a translator, we moved in in May of 77. Built a palm hut initially. Then we built a mud and pole house. Uh, dug a well. And they did an airstrip of 300 meters. And uh, we were set. And uh, it was cool. We lived there for a good 25 years. And that's where we raised our kids. They grew up there among, among the Pume people. And during our first years there with the Pume, we gave ourselves full time to language study, culture, and building relations. There was no gospel preaching. We didn't know the language. What word would we use for God? All kinds of challenges faced us. And people always want to know, well, how did you learn their language? Because it wasn't written down. There was no lessons available. There was no online courses, of course. So we just spent a lot of time hanging out with the people. They were the teachers, we were the students. We hung out with them, we ran with them, we hunted with them, we fished with them, we were in their gardens with them, just hanging out. They were the professors, and they taught us. They knew the language very well. And so we taped stories, wrote down new words, started on a dictionary, set up language lessons, did a linguistic analysis, and began to work with discourse analysis. And as we studied the language of these dear people, it was amazing how you see the glory of God in their language. For example, just very briefly, imagine putting 12 suffixes on the end of one verb. They have no problem. I wasn't stingy with you a long time ago, dear one. One word. You can say a lot with one word. And, and another interesting thing, they have different endings for everybody. A different ending for the guys, a different ending for the gals, a different ending for in-laws, and... What's interesting, they speak very differently when it comes to their mother-in-law. They call her the sliverizer because she has to do with thorns in your foot. It's a long story. 
But when you talk about your mother-in-law, totally different lingo, totally. So they, they really get into endings. Yes. And they were great with coming up with new words. For example, they, we got a bicycle in there and they called it a wire horse. And an airplane they called a high-going fire canoe. And a, and, a, and a flashlight was a fire container. So a different world. And as we studied their culture, one thing we concluded very quickly was that we didn't understand anything of how they viewed life. We had no idea. We were totally in the dark. And as we spent time with them, we found out that they, they consider the sky is just the bottom of the upper crust where rain, thunder, and lightning live. The stars are nothing more than vulture dung hanging on the bottom side of that high place. The moon is a female being that uh, causes ladies' period each month and comes down to drink the blood of the children. The Little Dipper is a small group of Puru birds that flies across the night sky. The Big Dipper is the man without a horse. A falling star indicates that a pume somewhere has been killed, and wherever the star falls, some, another pume will be killed. A pretty sunset is a reflection of their ancestors, way up on Kuma's planet, their goddess. They're all painted up prettily, and it's a reflection up in the sky. A rainbow is a dangerous being that can devour your spirit. There's lots of prohibitions about the rainbow, not a thing of beauty or peace or anything. It's something they greatly fear. Again, talk about a different wavelength. Talk about a different perspective. We had no idea what they were thinking. And we, we sometimes made assumptions in the beginning. We stopped that real fast. Here's some more examples. When your ear itches, it means there's a deer out there that wants to be shot. A yawn means you are hungry and not sleepy. To trip on the path means someone somewhere is gossiping about you. A hard delivery at birth is from the mother having eaten an alligator foot during pregnancy. Hemorrhoids are from chasing the Kerebutame bird. This, is, this gets a little bit frank here. Pimples are from eating too many fish eggs. The reason people choke is because people are staring at them while they eat. Sickness is caused by being shot by an evil spirit being dreamed about, doing black magic on you, or breaking a prohibition. Ladies go bald from walking in the rain during their periods without their head covered. Severe arthritis of the feet and hands is from stinginess. And so your extremities all begin to curl in toward that stingy self. Urinating and standing water for men will cause erectile dysfunction. Ladies with their period could, go easy, could easily die if they smell tobacco smoke. No drinking fresh water from the sky because it makes your teeth fall out. Cavities in your mouth come from teeth worms. And on and on, and our culture file just grew and grew. All this stuff was happening. And it was sad as we studied more and more. We saw how these animists worked so hard to make things right in their world. They could make things right with bad thunder and lightning by ripping open the tip of their tongues with a stingray barb and blowing it upward toward the sky. They could make things right when people were sick by singing the magic words. They could make things right by blowing blood on their infected children after piercing their tongue several times for healing. Things could be made right by singing to the gods and sucking out the sickness if the pume were shot by evil spirits. 
Things could be fixed up by waving burning palm branches at the moon to stop it from drinking the blood of their children. The earth could be made happy and productive again if they would sing their special songs. And they could heal deviant behavior by mixing genital blood with water and slapping it all over their bodies. Making things right. The animistic worldview. So you can see there was a huge need for us to study culture in order to contextualize the message of God. Without knowing what was in their heads, how in the world would we contextualize this important message, the most important message on the planet? And so we continued studying. And I remember back in those days, as we saw this, the darkness of this deception, it was so thick, it was so dense, I remember thinking, how in the world will the gospel ever penetrate this culture? But as we were studying and continuing to learn, we came across a very special word, harichadwan. And harichadwan is a simple compound word, to untie and to set free. And we figured this would work great for our word for redemption. Untie and set free. And so we came across that, and it was an encouragement and we kept pushing on, trusting God for big things. After five and a, six and a half years of study, six and a half years of study, language and culture, we began Bible translation in 1983. In about that same time, we began to write Bible lessons, and we began to teach. Up on the sand dune, we began to meet with the people beside their palm huts five and six times a week when they were back from gathering food. I still remember that first class. Here's Dominguero, he's carving an axe handle. Petro was cooking soup. Doheny was nursing a baby. Pedro was gutting a deer. Antonio was in his hammock. Pancho and Huster were sitting on the sand as others were around and a few pigs nestled in as well. And we began teaching in Genesis 1-1 where the story starts. There we began to teach, laying foundations from the Old Testament for a clear understanding of the New Testament. And what a joy to teach. After two and a half years, we had 10 believers. And then pretty soon there was 75 more. And then there was another 85 more. And then more. And God grew his church. And today there's nine village churches. And uh, they have the, translate, the Bible in their language. And uh, a lot of indigenous leadership. And God's done miracles there, really. This is God's story. You get out there and you see God work and you think, God does truly rock and roll. So cool. Okay, but... <laughs> Praise God. It's, it's, it's God works through ordinary people, right? It's God's gig. It's His show. He's the big mover and shaker and we have the privilege of being His vessels through whom he can work. So the question is, why missions, right? Why missions? Why leave our homeland? Why go to the ends of the earth? Why abandon the good life? Why leave behind Pete's and Starbucks and Handlebar and who knows what else? Why? Why spend six and a half years studying another language? 
when you flunked French in grade 10. <laughs> really, why spend 25 years living among a group of people in the middle of nowhere, going through hardships, lots of snakes around? What's the purpose? Well, over and over, people, we'd come back on furlough. People thought we were nuts, right? And not just unbelievers, believers too, they thought we were nuts. I remember one guy said, I'm sure glad I'm not a missionary. I would never be a missionary. Even if God would speak to me, I would not be a missionary. And I thought, wow, this guy doesn't have much, much respect for his God. Yeah, missions, why? But the account from John 4 tells us about this. We're going to read about Jesus and this Samaritan gal. And it shows us the heart of God. It shows us what God's up to, what he's interested in, what his glorious plan is, how he thinks, what he cares about. It gives us clear focus on how God views people, even people that society rejects. We see his non-discriminatory approach to everyone and his kindness for all nationalities and ethnicities. For right in the beginning of John 4, we see that Jesus, being led by the Spirit of God, is on a quest. So what's the quest all about? Well, he's looking for worshipers. Worshipers. Father worshipers. As the Pume say, Jesus is going about searching and searching for those who will think pretty thoughts toward the true Father. He's searching. He's looking. Looking. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are on a quest. And the Spirit leads him to Samaria, to the well. And he meets this gal. So let's pick it up at verse 3. I'm reading from the NLT. So he, Jesus, left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sichar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. So who was this Samaritan lady? As we know from Bo and Travis's good teaching in the last three weeks, she was part of a despised group of people. They were half-breeds, a mix of Jew and Gentile, syncretism there, mix of Jewish faith and pagan beliefs. And the Jews detested these people even more than they detested the Gentiles. And of course, this gal is totally surprised that Jesus even talks to her and treats her with respect because she's an adulterous woman. She's had five guys and now she's living with another one. And she's probably gossiped about, harassed, shamed, and kind of a hider. And so she comes at noon to avoid the general traffic in the morning and in the evening when most gals would go to the uh, well for water. 
So what does Jesus want to do on this quest? And pardon me, but I'll be using different Pume-isms because that's the way I think often since I've worked with the Pume so long. So there'll be just little Pume ways of saying things. But what does Jesus want to do on this quest? Well, he wants to give living forever water. That's what he wants to do. So he sees this woman thinking, Seeing this woman, he's thinking, wow, do I want to give her forever living water. I want to give her life. He wants to turn her into a father worshiper. This despised Samaritan woman, he wants to turn her into a full-blown citizen of heaven. He wants to take her out of Satan's pig pen and place her into the sheepfold of Jesus' righteousness, of his righteousness. So he's on this quest. The water giver is on this quest, looking for people to give his water to. For you see, this is the amazing thing, and you see this over and over, and you see it so clearly here, how Jesus loves people who cares about hygiene, looks, social status, habits. Jesus loves people. We used to sing that little song as kids, right? Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. Add brown in there. All these people, short and tall, deep and wide. It's like the Pume say, he loves those who have gardens and those who don't have gardens. He likes the people that have cows and those who don't have cows. He likes the people that live up on the sand dunes and those that live up on the open savanna. He likes those who live beside the river and those who live in the woods. God loves all people. He's the water giver and he's searching for, wa- for father worshipers. But this dear lady is confused. She's still thinking about normal water. She's thinking about a special type of normal water so that she'll never have to drink physical water again. So let's pick it up at verse 10. Jesus replied, if only you knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this water from? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. I'll never be thirsty. Then I'll never be thirsty again. And I won't have to come here to get water. Jesus is offering her a gift from God. He's offering her living forever water, but she still doesn't get it. And besides, she sees Jesus doesn't have a bucket. It looks kind of bad to be beside a well and not have a bucket and not even have a rope. You're thirsty, you're in the middle of nowhere, and there's nothing to get your water on. Jesus was empty-handed. It would seem as though Jesus is not prepared. He is offering special water, but he has nothing to deliver. And he's tired. He's a little strange. 
And it's really strange that he, being Jew, is interacting with this Samaritan gal. A gal, not just a guy, a gal. So what could this fellow be all about? And so she asks him, Are you greater than Jacob, our forefather? Ancestors were revered. Jacob was held in high esteem. Could Jesus be greater than him? Jesus could have answered, Before Jacob was, I am. But he didn't. And the woman, being ignorant of who Jesus really was, throws out the question, Can you provide better water than Jacob gave? It's interesting that she's challenging the very Lord, owner, boss of water. He alone is the giver of rain. He's the filler up of creeks and rivers and lakes. He's the ruler of the underground streams. He is very able to provide great water. But the lady doesn't see that. She only sees a tired, thirsty, bucketless individual who is promising to give her special water. And right, Jesus is tired. He's thirsty. He's a man. He's human. And this is the amazing thing that we see here. Jesus is a man from heaven. Let's read Philippians 2, 6 to 8. Though he, Jesus, was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Being very God, he released it. Jesus wasn't a cling-on. He didn't cling to his divine privileges. I'm always amazed there as you reflect on Jesus being in, in, in glory with God the Father there at the, by the throne. The white-hot brilliance of that scene. And he leaves it. He leaves the praise of angels. He leaves the adoration of the beasts there. His, his comfortable heaven, heavenly position, his glory, he leaves that all and he comes down, abandoning all his divine privileges. Deity puts on humanity. The Son of God from eternity past steps into the present as the man Jesus. And I've often thought about this. I look at Jesus and what he did. It's amazing to me. It's a huge encouragement as a missionary because to me, you could say Jesus totally became a missionary. He left his homeland, heaven, and he comes down to another country, this lowly earth. It's like he studied language and culture for 30 years, built relationships with the people, and then moved into ministry. And during this ministry, he didn't even cling to life. He let it go. He wasn't a clutcher, as the Pume say. He wasn't a clinger. He let it go. It was the will of the Father to let Jesus die, to let his blood drip on, into the ground as he was nailed to the pole there on Headbone Hill. 
He gave himself. He gave himself to be, to be able to offer living water and deal with the sin debt of mankind. He gave himself there, his blood, his death, in order that there would be father worshipers across the planet. And so you look at Jesus on the pole, on the cross, and we know that before he died, what does he yell out? It is finished. The Pume say, which is just like the Greek, paid for in full. Paid for in full. So what was paid for in full? The sin debt of all people was paid for in full. And the, the scriptures clearly teach, what's the, what does it say? The wages of sin is death. The cost of sin is death. The results of sin, the consequences, death. And all sin is against God. And so the justice of God had to be satisfied. And if we weren't going to give God a payment for our sin, then someone had to do it for us. And we had nothing to give. It's like the Pume said, Our blood doesn't measure up. It's not holy blood. It's not perfect blood. It's sinner's blood. Doesn't measure up. Jesus' blood measured up. So Jesus, on Headbone Hill, he gives perfect satisfaction to perfect justice with a perfect blood death. And God judges and punishes his son with our sins and with the sins of that Samaritan woman placed upon him. Jesus suffered the anger of God that should have fallen on all of us. That anger fell on him. He's our substitute anger bearer. He bore that anger from the universal judge who was demanding sin and death, blood and death. But that payment came from the substitute debt payer. He paid in full. And that is why the Pume joyfully have said so many times, Jesus, our substitute, totally paid in full with his blood and death to the one who was demanding blood and death without any debt staying behind. No debt stayed behind. Nothing was left unpaid when Jesus paid. That's why the Pume always say, we're in the place of no anger. We're in the place of no casting out. We're in the place of no judgment. We're in the place of no accusation. Because we're paid for in full ones. Earlier, the Pume had worked so hard to make everything right in their animistic worldview. They were fixing up everything, doing all these different things with blowing blood and so forth. And here the biggest question was dealt with. Jesus is the great fixer-upper. He was providing a way to drink living forever water. He paid. He made it possible. And so something else the Pume always talk about. So Jesus, having done that, he becomes the shame eradicator. So much shame. He's the shame eradicator. He takes our shame away. That's the living water giver. He does that for us. He sets us free. He unties us and he sets us free. He becomes the curse and he unleashes us in freedom. 
And so because that debt is all paid, here's Jesus on this quest looking for worshipers, father worshipers. He's seeking them in Samaria. He's seeking them in Carp. He's seeking them at the ends of the earth. Now back to John 4. Kind of a little off a stretch there. So Jesus visits with this beloved woman. And she hears that he is Messiah. And she becomes the vehicle by which the whole village comes to Christ. In no time after hanging with Jesus, this adulterous woman turns evangelist. And isn't that just like Jesus to do the most amazing things in our lives? Take ordinary people in ordinary situations and suddenly they become extraordinary. Let's read starting in verse 28. The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, He told me everything I did. It's a great story. It's a great chunk of history there. There's a similar story in Pume land that I want to tell you about. When some of the Pume first trusted in Christ, there were some villages far away that got super upset. They were convinced that these new believers were becoming evil spirits. They had a special word for it, and they were really upset. And they could notice that they were becoming demons because they were having increased lightning strikes all around their villages and they, know they, were, they, knew, they knew that they were being caused by these new believers. And they started to do combative magic on them. They started singing their power songs to combat and ward off the evil that was being generated by this new little group of believers. It got a little tense there for a while and then something happened. One of the people from that village came over because there was a lady. He comes over, Cadro, and he marries Catalina. And Catalina is the daughter of the first believer. And so Ramon, his father-in-law, starts talking to him quite a bit. Other believers talk to him, and he's sitting in on the classes too. He's a very relaxed guy. He's just hanging out. He became a very good friend. And he was around for about six months, and suddenly he disappeared. And we heard later when he got back that he had gone back to those villages, those three villages. And he started talking to them. And he talked and talked and visited about what he had been hearing. And he started int introducing them to the Pere de Rome, the in the beginning one, the Pariapame Tamo the true creator one. And they listened and they talked about him being the god of the alligator and the god of the anaconda and the ruler of the sun and the moon and the controller of the growth in the gardens and on and on they went. And these guys were, they weren't on the edge of their seats. They were just listening, leaning forward, listening. The whole group of them were spellbound and Cadero opened the door totally there with this group of people and it wasn't long after that, and they send word 
Send us somebody to teach us. We want to know the book. We want to know what Abdet Tamohamai said. What does the word of the true God say? Send us somebody. We started having Bible classes with that group shortly thereafter, and almost everybody in those villages, those three villages, came to Christ. Almost everybody. Witch doctors, the whole slew. Marvelous. God rocks. God rocks. God does amazing things. He works through ordinary people. So let's wrap this up here. I can't even see my clock, but I'm not worried. (laughs) The heart of the triune God is for all nations. God loves people. He loves the Pume. He loves the 750 unreached people groups in Papua New Guinea. He loves the approximately 800 different unreached ethnic groups in Indonesia. God loves people. His blood ran for people. He was the sacrificial lamb for people that he might give them living water. And that is why because he is into people, he loves people, he wants to save people, he gives the command, right? He dies, he raises from the dead, and before his ascension, he gives these commands to the body, the church, to you and me. Here in Matthew 28, very common verse, but I'm going to read it. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth, All authority, all authority has been given to him. He has the power, he has the, uh, everything he needs to send the church forward. All authority has been given. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Go. Go. Then he says again here, Luke recorded it in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you, the Holy Spirit. You will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria. He's still on Samaria. That's good. And to the ends of the earth. And what is so good, God, through the Apostle John, gives us a glimpse of the completed body of Christ from the book of Revelation. And it's so great because in that completed body of Christ, we see who will be included. Let's read Revelation 5, 9, and 10. And they sang a new song with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered. And your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on earth. 
members from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, every language group in the completed body of Christ. And Jesus there is visiting with his disciples in John 4.35, and you know what he says. He says, you know the saying, four months planting and harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. It's like that song by Bob Dylan. You know, Bob Dylan got saved for a while, and then he got unsaved. Who knows? Who knows what happened? Good old Bob Dylan. He's singing. He's, he, you know that song? When you're going to wake up. Do, 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 do. When you're going to wake up, church, wake up, disciples, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe. The fields of the world. Wake up. Wake up, reality carp. Wake up, members of Christ's body. Wake up and look beyond the borders of our own little towns and states. Look to the world. Look to the ends of the earth. Where on the planet is there no gospel availability? Where can people not get saved if they'd want to? Where is there no translation done? Where is there no radio signal, TV signal? Where has our languages still unreached? Where there's no gospel availability. Most missions always focuses on places where there's already gospel availability. What about the church getting radical and going where no one has laid a foundation like the Apostle Paul said in Romans 15. Going to a new place where there is nothing there. Ends of the earth thinking. Just like God used the Samaritan gal, like he used Cadro, just like God used ordinary people like my wife and I to reach the Pume, what does God want to do through you guys, really, Jesus is looking for worshipers. He wants to give him living water, and he wants to do it through his church. And you know what? This whole thing about missions, God's looking for all kinds of people. What you've seen here with us is just one branch of missions, right? But God's always looking for people, many different trades and talents and gifts, and in our team there in South America, we have, uh, you have the printers and the pilots and the mechanics and the school teachers and, the, admit, and the, the painters and the builders and the plumbers and everything you guys are doing, that could be done on the mission field. Everything. Programmers. God's looking for people who can do ordinary work, working together to accomplish all that the Lord has in his heart. And if we can't go, we should really be diligent in giving and praying. Some can't go. But many can go. Many can go. And it's a privilege to go and get on board. And you know, we're always reminded of this. It's not so much our credentials. It's not so much our credentials as it is our own yieldedness to the Spirit of God and what He wants to do in and through us. Early on when I heard about missions, a, a guy just told me that, that verse from Zechariah 4.6. Not by might nor by strength, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. The spirit is the oomph. He's the engine. And it's like Robert Murray McShane said, an obedient person is a powerful tool in the hands of Almighty God. What, does God, what can God do through one obedient person? Anything. It's amazing. 
An obedient person is a powerful tool in the hands of Almighty God. So you always have an extraordinary God doing amazing things through ordinary people. The focus is always on God. And the thing that I see here is I talk to people about missions up in Canada too. It's like, you know, Jesus wasn't a Klingon, but it seems like we are. We cling, we clutch to stuff. It's hard to give up privileges. Jesus gave up his divine privileges. What about letting go? Launching. Being radical. Doing something out of the ordinary that people don't expect you to do. Based on scripture, not just on a whim, but based on the word of God. There's many empire builders on this planet. Many that are building as if we're going to be here forever. But we're out of here. This is the world that is passing away, right? This is not our real home. We should adopt pilgrim status, a pilgrim mentality, because we're out of here. This, this is soon going to all be gone. And so the question is, are, are we, do we want to live for the dot of the present or for the continuum of eternity? How do we want to do our building and banking? For eternity or for this world? The Pume always talk about it in terms of what are we doing? Are, are, we, are we doing the forever stuff or the pass away stuff? That's how they phrase it. Getting out living water. You know, if you look at the Joshua Project there online, they say there's about 7,372 unreached people groups. Wycliffe has 3,300 different unreached language groups. That's lots of work. Can we get on board with what God is doing? Why missions? Why missions? Why did we go down to South America? Why are people going to all these different tribal groups all over Papua New Guinea? We have many friends over there, many in Africa, many in South America, all over the world. There's great mission agencies, Radius, uh, Ethnos, all kinds will prepare you and send you. Why do missions? Because God is all about missions, guys. God is all about missions. And we have the privilege of presenting our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him, which is our reasonable service. And we have the privilege of following him, denying ourselves, and taking up our cross. That's our privilege. I'd like to just close in prayer. God, you are a great and holy God. And we're amazed that you would want to include us in your program, Lord. Thank you. And Lord, I just pray that you would stretch us and challenge us this morning unsettle us, don't let us be comfortable with attitudes that don't please you. Lord, don't let us be content with the things that are passing away, but shake us up, God. 
Shake us up. Keep us from thinking small thoughts, God, and uh, may we think heaven thoughts about divine purposes. God, keep us thinking biblically, and don't let us be satisfied with the trivial stuff, Lord. Teach us, God. Lord, for many people, missions is white noise. They hear it, and it's, it's ignored. God, don't let us ignore your challenge, your plea, your commandments, God. Unsettle us, disturb us, shake us up. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you, God, that you're building your church and that the gates of hell will not prevail. Thanks for this body. Bless them, encourage them, strengthen them, Lord. And thanks for the joy of teaching. In Jesus' name, amen.